Oh, it's good to see you in the house of the Lord today. And my prayer has been all week that God would make our time together very special. You know, it's been, although it's been decades since I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, the memory of it all still burns pretty brightly in my mind. Now, it was in the, I was in the fifth grade when I heard that God loved me so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins, making it possible for me to have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. I mean, when I heard that for the first time, I said, wow, what's this all about? I wanted to know more. And so, uh, as God would have it, I did begin to learn more. And of course, when I did, un- I did not understand everything about this new life in Christ, all right? I, I, w- I was only in the fifth grade, come on, <laughs> you know? I wasn't a theologian, my brain wasn't quite, you know, in gear yet, uh, but I was able to hear that much. Now, and when I heard that uh, no one comes to the Father uh, but through me in John chapter 14, by faith I accepted Christ, uh, off God, uh, God's offer of eternal life by putting my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior. And again, at all I knew at that moment, at that specific moment, was that I needed and wanted to spend life and eternity with God rather than without God. All right? Does that sound strange to you? Well, it shouldn't, because that's how most people end up coming to Christ. They just finally decide life is going to be better with God than without God. And so give me God, <laughs> so to speak. And that's how the journey begins. Uh, the message of love, the cross, forgiveness of sin, eternal life was so clear and so simple. And yet it was powerful enough to impact lives forever. And that was the amazing thing about it. Now, as the years passed, I learned more about what Jesus did for me and also what he wanted me to do for him. And this became really exciting. And so today, I want to share what I have learned with others so that they can grow in their faith and walk with God. Now, I happen to have the fourth message here uh, in this series that was preparing us for the concert. And so mine fell on telling the story of Jesus. And so I approach it with fear and trembling because the key passage, of course, is Matthew 28. And if you've been in a Baptist church any time of any length, you've heard that passage preached many, many times. And so I don't pretend to try and teach you something new, but I do want to hope, I do hope that God will teach us something. And that's the important thing. So as I begin to think about telling the story of Jesus, where do you start? What do you tell about Jesus? You know, like, for example, do I start telling him that he's one part of the Trinity? Is that where I start? If you start there, man, you're going to get lost in the woods really quick, all right? If I begin to start on some of these other deep doctrinal things, boy, people are going to look at me kind of like, you know, one eye going that way and one eye going that way. You know, what are you talking about? But I think the Bible, in its wonder and the genius of God, is he gives us two things to make sure to include when we tell the world about the story of Jesus. And these two things are a message about Jesus, and the second part is the mission from Jesus, all right? So there's only two points in this whole thing. Most of us can probably hang in in there long enough to get those two points, the message about Jesus and the mission from Jesus, okay? So let's start with the message about Jesus. Now, where do we find 
the, this uh, presented to us. Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. And it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you also you are saved, if you hold to the fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. So, the message of Jesus about Jesus is presented to us here in this verse. And Paul calls it the gospel, literally the good news, okay? And you'll notice here that the good news is composed of two truths about what Christ did for us. It's much like two sides of one coin, all right? They're different, but they're still the same. The first truth is about his crucifixion in verse 3. Christ died for our sins. Now, it's natural for anybody who hears, Christ died for my sins? Why? Why did he have to do that? And if you look very closely, it's, we can find the answers to that in Scripture. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And it says there, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin enters into the picture. Sin separates us from God. Something's got to be fixed here. And so it says also in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So wages of, we have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. Again, something needs to be fixed and fixed desperately. Then you look at the fix. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So, we had a problem that needed fixing. And God provided the fix in his son dying on the cross for us. When it says Christ died for us, it's the idea he died in our place. We were supposed to go to the cross to pay for our sins. But guess what? God said, I'm going to send my son to die in your place. And so that is what happened. So the first truth that's in the gospel is Christ died for our sins or his crucifixion. But did you notice there's also a second truth? And this is about his resurrection. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It says, Jesus died, verses 1 to 3. Then Jesus was buried and then he rose again on the third day. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. His resurrection is, was and is still hard for the world to accept. In fact, if you had a choice between the crucifixion and the resurrection, the world would quickly understand and embrace the crucifixion. 
But the resurrection is a real problem for the world because the world knows what is at stake. It's easier to believe a lie than to believe the truth, one author said. And that's probably true. That's probably true. You think of all the people today who get caught in scams, people who get caught in all these internet things that are going on and all that kind of stuff. And it's so easy to see how they fall for anybody's story. You see, rather than the truth. From the very beginning, that was the problem with the resurrection. And that takes us to our key passage today, Matthew chapter 28. So if you want to turn your Bibles over to that, we will go there for the rest of the time. So Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 11, it says. And what we notice from verse 11 to 15 is there's a plot against the resurrection. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. Whoops, sorry. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If they were asleep, how did they know the disciples stole the body? I don't know. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And the story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. All right. So the plot involved the soldiers who were supposed to guard the body going to the religious leader and said, the tomb is empty. The body's gone. The religious leader said, we got this. We'll manage this. So what we're going to do is we're going to pay you some money to cooperate. We're going to guarantee that you will not get in trouble with your superiors. All we need is you to support us. That's all we need. All right? So you go out and tell the people this story. And that's exactly what they did. That was the first assault on the resurrection. This plot that was hatched to discredit the resurrection story. Now, let's fast, let's fast forward the, uh, the video that we have in front of us. And what happens now, we know that many, many centuries later, there are still other plots and theories that are designed to discredit the resurrection. Look, this is not an Easter sermon, all right? But I will remind you of some things you might have heard. Like, for example, some of those theories where Jesus did not really die. He didn't really die. He just fainted. Or he just had a blackout. Or he just took a short nap. Something like that. My friend, how is that possible? The crucifixion is a brutal event. It's a brutal event. The Romans were experts at it. And the soldiers who attended the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they knew the difference between a dead person and just an unconscious person. All right? But nevertheless, there are people who believe this. There's a people who believe that others stole the body. They stole the body. Now, stop and think a minute. All right? Okay, put on your CSI hat for just a moment. All right? What are you picking out? Who would be the likely suspects? How about the Romans? How about the Romans? Would they have stolen the body? Not really. All they cared about was this is just another dead Jewish person. 
They wanted to stay far away from this as possible. And so they had no reason. The Jews merely had to, the Jews are another suspect, but Jews merely had to produce the body and game over. Game over. There's no resurrection. Look, it's right here. What are you guys getting so excited about? You see? So the Jews, they they steal the body? No, they couldn't produce the body. How about the disciples, like the soldiers said? Well, from Scripture, we know that the disciples at this point were demoralized and they were an untrained bunch who did not even expect the resurrection. When Mary and Martha came and told them, hey, the tomb is empty, Jesus is risen. They said, how, what? We can't believe this. We got to go ourselves to see. They did not expect this. They were totally demoralized. They were leaderless, as it were. And so they're not the likely bunch to do it. And please remember, the disciples were not special forces. They were not rangers. They were not, they were not commandos, as you, know, you like to call them here in, in Singapore. They're just, what, simple fishermen and simple citizens, okay? Would they be a match for the trained professional guards that guarded the tomb? Probably not, okay? Now, of course, there's one more. Jesus' appearance was just a mass hallucination, okay? People saw what they wanted to see. But that might be true if there was one meeting. Suppose Jesus made one appearance. Maybe that would be true. But Jesus made many appearances to many different people, many different sizes, audiences. And so, but they all reported the same thing. Jesus did appear to them, okay? So, the point is, was the mass hallucination, was the stealing of the body by somebody else, was really Jesus really dead? They're all the myths and lies that have been perpetuated by people to discredit the resurrection. From the very beginning till even today, myths and lies abound that have, uh, to discredit the resurrection. Well, that is why it's important to look at, for just a moment, proof of the resurrection. Okay? Now, one author that I was reading, he gave 22 reasons for the proof of the resurrection. Are you up for 22 proofs? Probably not. So let me just give you a few. For example, one of them is the empty tomb itself. The disciples, the Jews, and the Roman soldiers, they all knew the tomb was empty, right? That's what the soldiers reported. That's what the, the news that was going around. They all knew the tomb was empty. Well, if the tomb is empty, what happened to the body? Okay, that just makes common sense. There were multiple appearances of Jesus uh, to many people. I mentioned this earlier. At least seven separate appearances uh, are recorded for us. And they're at different times with different people and different numbers. Okay? That would be a proof. There was the appearances. The third one, the remarkable transformation of the disciples themselves. They went from being an unsure, timid, doubtful bunch to a radically transformed band of committed disciples, okay? That is amazing. The difference between the Peter of the, at the end of the Gospels and the Peter of Acts is 360, easy. He did a complete 360. 
And so what we find was this band of, of committed disciples, martyrdom did not intimidate them. Persecution and opposition did not stop them. And hatred and hardship did not slow them down one little bit. That's pretty amazing when you think about this group and what they were like at the end of the Gospels. Walking around, their heads hanging down and just, you know, well, what are we going to do, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly, boom, everything changes. And they just can't wait to get out there to tell people about Jesus. Okay? Well, there are many others, but we don't have time to cover them all. And that leads us then. One can move from the plots against the resurrection, proofs for the resurrection. But I want to end this part by pointing out the preciousness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The preciousness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes it's very easy, especially for churches as long and uh, in existence as Grace Baptist Church with so many people who've been Christians for a long time. And we hear resurrection, we hear crucifixion. Oh, here we go again, okay? Uh, I've heard this one before. I heard it even said better, you know? And, And that's the way we go. That's the way we operate. But you know, when it comes to the resurrection, Paul hit it right on the head in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 to 19. Now, we don't have time to read that, but I'm going to give you the Arnold Wong Reader Digest version, all right? And it goes like this. In verse 14, Paul says, Without the resurrection, our preaching is vain. It is futile. Verse 15, Without the resurrection, faith, our faith is vain. It is empty. Verse 16, The apostles, we, the apostles, are false witnesses. You shouldn't believe a word we say. Verse 17. Corinthians and all who believe are still in their sin. Verse 18. Those who have already fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have perished. Full stop. If there is no resurrection. Verse 19. Christians and of of all men on the face of the earth, are to be pitied. If there's no resurrection. Now, that says to me, the resurrection is pretty precious to all who believe. Don't you think? Of course. I don't want to be pitied. I really don't want to be pitied. I don't want to be speaking to people of something that doesn't matter, has no weight behind it. I don't don't want to be in my sins. Do you? Do you want to bear the full consequences of your sin? Without the resurrection, that's exactly what happens. Well, what does the resurrection do? It proves Jesus is who he says he is. The Son of God. In John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. We see this unfold for us. John chapter 10, verse 17 through 18. And it says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. That's exactly what he did. He let himself lie down, and he picked himself up. It proves who Jesus is. It proves the veracity of the scriptures. The scriptures 
predicted the resurrection in the Old Testament, and it was fulfilled in the New Testament. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4? How did those verses end? According to the scriptures. You see? That's how it all happened. So, the resurrection gives, us, gives proof of the truthfulness of scriptures. The last thing is it bears remembering that the power that effected the resurrection is available to us to live a life for God. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And it says this, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he, what? Raised him from Uh, the dead, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So, my friend, my sister, my brother in Christ, if you're sitting out there and going through something right now that's just totally overwhelming you, leaving you feeling powerless, what God is telling us is that the same power that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is available to us. It's one of the benefits and blessings that comes to us by being one of God's own. That's how precious this resurrection is. So, if you're wondering like I am sometimes, what do I need to tell people about Jesus? I must tell them the message about Jesus. That he died for our sins. That he rose again from the grave. That's part of the message. Now, you might have to do a little elaboration, of course, but that's what you need to tell them, all right? That begins the discussion. So, telling the story of Jesus means understanding the message of the gospel, Christ's death and resurrection for our sins. But, as I told you, there are two parts to this thing. And the second one is that the story of Jesus involves understanding the mission from Jesus, Now, let's go back to uh, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now, not only do I need to share with people in telling the story of Jesus, what Jesus did for us, but I also must understand, help them understand what Jesus wants us to do for him. Okay? Now, we can look at this in many different ways, but one of them that I found very helpful is this particular breakdown. In verses 16 through 18, we find a great claim by Jesus. Okay, a great claim by Jesus. What was that claim? Look at verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. It says, and then in verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, all authority. Was Jesus just bragging or did he really mean it? No, he did. Now, the Greek word that is used there 
All authority means delegated authority, okay? Delegated from who? From God. And it means that one has the right to do anything. The person has the right to do anything. It is more than just having the ability to do anything. Therefore, Jesus has the right to do what he wants on earth and in heaven. To put it another way, Jesus has universal authority. He has sovereign authority. He has unlimited authority from God because of his, no, his resurrection. No one and nothing can do anything except the authority of Christ allow it. That's why it's such a great claim. Okay? Jesus was not coming to them, okay, guys, please listen to me. Please, 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 you know, you know, whatever you do, please stay awake and please, you know, hear what I have to say. He wasn't doing that. Right out of the box, Jesus comes and says, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth. If I was a disciple, I would shape up right away. I would want to hear what he has to say. And that leads us to the great, a great commission found in 19 in the first part of verse 20. And this we can look at in many different ways too. But I'm pretty simple-minded. As most of you know, for the last eight years, you've lived with my simple-mindedness, okay? But that's okay. If you've learned something along the way, I'm quite happy with that. And so you can look at it this way. In the Great Commission, Jesus answers three great questions. What are we to do? Who are we to do it with? And how are we to do it? Okay? Three simple things. Okay? The what, who, and how. All right? Let's take what first part. What are we to do? Look at verse, um, verse uh, 19. And it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very familiar. Okay? All you Greek theologians. All right? Uh, hang tight. Okay, there's only one verb in this whole statement. Make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. He learns by listening and doing. Okay, we are to make disciples of other men and women, boys and girls, by turning them into devoted followers of the Lord Jesus. That's what we're to do. Make disciples. Very clear. No magic, no mystery about what he's saying. Make disciples. Make those who would be devoted followers of Christ. Now, who are we to make disciples of? Well, you notice in there, he says, of all the nations. Of all the nations. Did you know that the word nations there is the Greek word ethne? And it's where you get the English word ethnic. It refers to various peoples in the world. Jesus wants us to go and share the message of Jesus to all the ethnic groups, all the language groups, all the racial groups. No exceptions. Everybody needs to hear. That's what he wants us to do. So the whole world then becomes our mission field. Not just McPherson, not just Singapore, not just ASEAN. It's be way beyond that. And the way things are going in America, you'll be in America soon because we're going to need Christ like crazy, all right? But that's the way it is, you see? Jesus wants us to go to all nations. And then lastly, how are we to do it? Ah, that's where these other three words come in. 
And the Greek scholars sitting out there will know, ah, there's three participles, three descriptive words, going, baptizing, and teaching. The going part means going and share the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? It is the message about Jesus, about his crucifixion and his resurrection. Okay, we need to share that with people. And then baptizing means bringing them into the family, helping them to identify with Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay? And then teaching, teaching them everything Jesus has taught us to teach others whatever they need to know in order to follow Jesus and live for Jesus effectively, to teach what Jesus wants them to believe and how to behave. Pretty simple, pretty simple, right? But it's so hard to do, isn't it? Because we just can't get ourselves up for that sort of thing. But that is what we are to do. It's not the purpose of the church to merely produce more church members. Although I have nothing against church membership. I love it when I meet people who want to join the church. In fact, if you're not a church member, I encourage you to look into it. It can really open a whole world to yourself. The purpose of the church is not merely to produce intellectualized Christians. Although, that is very needful. We need to have people who know the word of God, who know the truths of God and can communicate it to other people. But that's not the primary purpose. That's not the primary purpose. If that were the primary purpose, uh, I think they would have lost me a long time ago. Okay? They would have lost me a long time ago. All right? But that's not the primary purpose. The third thing, the purpose of the church is not merely to produce passive pew sitters and casual onlookers. Okay? But guess what? That's what the great majority of people who attend church are these days, okay? They're pew setters. They are very passive onlookers. Very few of them get out of the stands and onto the field and into the game. So what is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to go out and share the gospel and, by, uh, and to help those who accept Christ as their Savior to become disciples of Jesus Christ who in turn will make other disciples of Christ. Some people say to us, Effie and I, why are you guys going to Singapore? There's a lot of heathen here in America. <laughs> you know, why do you have to go to Singapore? Well, God, that's what God wanted us to do. What are you going to do in Singapore? Well, I hope we'll make a few disciples during our time there. And guess what? When our time is up, they will in turn lead other people to Christ and make disciples of them. It doesn't stop because of a person, a couple. It just keeps on going, okay? As I am fa famous for saying or infamous for saying, it gets gooder and gooder, all right? That's what we want to see happen here at GBC, Okay? So we are to make disciples of all people of the world by going, baptizing, and teaching. Now, if that wasn't really good, a great claim, a great commission, it comes down to a great comfort in verse 20, the last part of verse 20. And it says in there, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, I'm so, so, so glad that Jesus said that. He says, I'm not going to leave you. John chapter 15, verse 5. Isn't it Jesus who said, For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Yeah, he said that. He said that. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, God himself says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I had some person call me the other day, and they're really going through some deep, deep stuff. And they asked all these really good but hard questions for which there are no answers. And suddenly, what was I going to say to this person? All I could say to them is, I'll pray for you, and I'll pray for the presence and promises of God to be very real to you at this time. That's all we have, is the presence and the promises of God. As you like to say in Singapore, at the end of the day, that's what it is. At the end of the day, that is what it is. The Lord will be with us to the very end. So what do, we, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? What do I need to do? Okay, first of all, rediscover the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is make disciples. And I would leave GBC with this thought. And that is, make, make, making disciples. Don't just make it a slogan. Don't make it just a slick strategy. Make it our mission from Jesus. Make it our mission from Jesus. So many churches, I think, we are so impressed with them because we say, what do you do? Oh, let me show you what we do. And they give you a manual about this thick. And they have all these charts and they have all of these wonderful plans and things and arrows going everywhere, you know? And we say, and it's in color. And it's in color, no and we say, wow, some of them even have 3D printers, and so it levels up, comes off the page, you know. And we say to ourselves, wow, this is great. But what I want to know, what I want to know about a church, if it's great or not, is are you making disciples? What are you doing to make disciples? Okay. Second thing you can do, become personally involved in disciple-making. What I'd like you to do is, I'll challenge you to do this, okay? Take the back of the Sunday bulletin and write down the names of three people that you would like to see come to faith in Christ sometime during the remaining part of this year. Well, I'm a pastor. I can't come up with three. I mean, really, you know. Okay, give me one. But write it down. And then... Pray to God that he'll give you an opportunity to share the message of Jesus Christ with them. Somehow, some way, that he would allow you to do that. And don't wait until the building is finished in 2017. I know that's a tendency, you know. You say, well, you know, afternoon service, coming to CHF, not even our place. You know, I don't want to do that. Why not? Why not? What happens here can happen there, <laughs> Right? So why wait? Why wait? Okay. Perhaps maybe you filled up that part of the page quickly. Write down, then write down three, the names of three other people you would like to start being involved in discipling. Teaching. Teaching what? Teaching what God has taught you. <laughs> Simple. Teach them what Jesus has taught you. All right? That's what it is. That's discipling in its rawest form. 
And then ask God to provide opportunities for that to happen as well. Now, I'm going to get a little sentimental on you here, okay? So please forgive me. But over the last almost eight years now, I would have to say one of the greatest privileges that I have had as being your pastor is the, the opportunity to help disciple some young couples as they prepare for marriage. Now, yeah, some smart guy is sitting out there and saying, are you ever prepared for marriage? You know, no, but you can be better prepared than not prepared, right? And so what happens is that God has allowed me the wonderful privilege, Effie and I, to sit down with couples and help prepare them for marriage. And that has been one of the fantastic opportunities that God has given to us. And now, in fact, we're beginning to see that some of them have even invited us to say, go with us in the journey a little further. We're now parents. We'd love to help see what you have to say about parenting. And we know a little bit about parenting. Uh, just enough to get you in trouble, all right? And all we ask that you do is don't repeat our mistakes, okay? You'll learn more from our mistakes than you will with our successes, okay? But we're happy to go along with them on that journey. And there are people out here in the, in the body of Christ here at GBC right now who want to have somebody come and teach them what Jesus has taught them. Are you willing to do that? Oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I'm too humble. I'm too this. I'm too that. I, I, I'm too scared. <sighs> Come on. Get with it. So, at the end of this, all this, tell the story of Jesus. Share the message about what Jesus did. Died for our sins and rose again from the grave. Carry out the mission from Jesus, which is to make disciples. Are you sharing the message and carrying out the mission? Very simple question. If you don't, who will? Let's pray. Father in heaven, somehow, some way, we've lost ourselves in a forest of complexity and confusion. When, Lord, really, there are things you want us to do. You want us to share the message about Jesus. You want us, Lord, to be engaged in the mission from Jesus. And I pray that today, all who are within listening distance get that point. And Father, that not only Grace Baptist Church, but any, from any other place that people may be in the audience, that they will engage themselves in these two things. Oh Lord, help us to be single-minded, that we will learn and live the way you want us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let us rise for the song of response. Let's tell the story of Jesus. Let's share the message of the cross and gospel and to carry out the mission for the cause of Christ.